Welcome to episode 60 of the Brown and Black podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. Mike, I have a question for you. Yes, sir. What is authenticity to you? That's a very good question. You see, you, you caught me off guard because I would love to have an, a dictionary reference. But my my, my, <laughs> re, my my belief in authenticity is based in reality, uh, like the word says, authentic, uh, real, truthful, honest. That That's authentic. If I said, you know, Jack Rico, he's an authentic guy. He's, he's a real guy. He's not full of shit. I, I keep forgetting that I can say shit, you know, stuff like that. So that would be my, what would your definition be? Being one's true own character. That's the dictionary definition. Ooh. Sorry. So you could be authentically an asshole. Yes, exactly. One's true, pure, absolute own character. Ah, so you got the dictionary. That's good. I like that. Well, yeah, I read it yesterday and I had like a deep dive conversation with a friend of mine who, um, has become extremely authentic. How many times have you been looking at an interview? Hollywood, celebrities, politicians, social justice, anybody of color is always talking about authenticity. We need more authenticity. You need to be more authentic. How often have you heard that, Mike? Well, I've heard variations of that. I'll never forget when I first got to WBAI, Okay. And I was a kid. I was like 21. You know, I'm coming to this public radio station, very political, and I'm doing a science fiction radio drama. And I remember the older black producers there kind of pulling me aside and being like, yeah, brother, you know, you don't realize, you know, you need to be doing more. You know, they were basically telling me that what I was doing was frivolous and I should be doing something of greater authenticity to my culture. Mm. And I thought. Meaning be really black. Basically, basically. So see, this is what I'm saying. The word authenticity has become code for every single person to subjectively interpret that word to what it means to them. So let me tell you what I think authenticity means and screw the dictionary for now. Yes, you got to be true to one's own character. But what the fuck does that mean when you don't know who you are? When you don't know what your character is? When you're in the middle of an identity crisis and our next guest, Gina Torres, talks about that identity crisis as an Afro-Latina. And I started thinking about I feel like I've been pressured by society, by friends, to be authentic. Why? Because I think for a long time, people have thought of me as this bland person, as this safe, innocuous person. There's no beards on him. There's no tattoos on him. He has no hair to grow out. He's always safe. Don't you notice? Like when he's on the Today Show with Hoda, he's like almost white safe. Am I being truly authentic? Meaning, am I being truly Latino? Am I bringing my flag with me? Every time I go somewhere and go, Mira, oye, chico, estoy aquí, Latino, authentically Latino, yay! I don't want to be that guy. So what does authenticity mean for people when they tell you they want you to be more authentic? And here's what I think. I think that truly being authentic is not being bland or safe. It's about being wild. It's about giving in to all your spontaneous impulses, all your defects, bringing with you all that you are, the good and the bad. Now, let's say somebody comes over to my house and they're being authentically them, right? I'm supposed to love their authenticity. I'm supposed to embrace their authenticity. I'm supposed to support their authenticity. But that person comes into the house and puts their feet up, uh, asks for food anytime they want. They take a deuce, you know, in the bathroom and don't let you know, you know, nothing. And then they're also nice as well. You get the good and the bad. But why the fuck do I have to love that? Why couldn't you keep the peace while you're in my house for an hour or two? 
Why couldn't you just not be so damn authentic? Okay, I really want to respond to this because first of all, I was really planning to come to your house and and lay a deuce. But, <laughs> but I'll tell you if I do. But okay, but but here's the thing, you know, it's interesting what you're saying about authenticity and that word and how people use it because there are a lot of people I think who use the, the same sort of well, I'm just being honest. Well, I'm I'm just speaking the truth. Yeah, you're speaking your truth and yeah, you're maybe, you know, saying what's on your mind. But are you taking into consideration? Are you being considerate of others? Well, see, that's the thing. Consider being considerate, having decorum, having etiquette, being polite is not a part of authenticity. Well, it depends. It depends on what are you authentically, because if authentically you're a half ass, half nice person, then that's it. That's who you are authentically. But I don't have to love your authenticity then. No, you don't, because you are being authentically, uh, let's say, displeased at that side of that person. And you should be able to be authentically uh, offended. Right. And <laughs> I think a little while ago you said, so, you know, there are people who are authentically assholes. Yes. And, and, and that's what I'm saying. Should we have a society, Mike, that is completely and absolutely purely authentic, which means that you bring in all the good and all the bad into your home, into your workplace, into your social circles, everything about you. If we are supporting this new authentic era for all generations to be completely authentic, I'm just letting you know that if people really truly embrace that as a full societal unit, we're going to hate people so damn much. I don't think anybody's ever going to talk to each other again. I think there'll be people who are like, yeah, yeah, I love that. It, that that's inspiring. But when it comes to you, when it hits you and you got to deal with people's authenticity, I don't think everybody wants to be a part of that. Really, what you're describing is where we're at now, because I'll have to add another uh, phrase to this authenticity conversation is what I call toxic individualism, you know, where it's like, well, I'm free to be me. I'm going to come in your store and because I don't want to wear a mask and I feel that's my right not to. And authentically exactly, them, authentically them and, and people who flip out, people who are just like I said, authentic assholes and a, a liar, <laughs> a liar can be authentic. Like you're just full of shit. You're just straight up full of shit. You Trump. Yeah. Trump. Wouldn't you say that Trump was authentically him? Well, I'd say he's definitely authentically him. You know, he. But he also but part of who he is is full of shit. You know, he's a salesman. He's a hustler. He's a con man. Him being the way he is, is part of why rappers were singing about him back in the 90s and the 80s before he came out that he was before it came out that he was just so openly racist. Right. And all I'm saying is this. I happen to think and, and, and maybe maybe other people think that Obama was never truly authentic because he wasn't really displaying his black side. He was only displaying his white side. Is Obama today the rock star that we've all come to know him post-presidency, including in the, in the presidency? But is Obama authentically him, you think? I'm going to answer that very specifically because I disagree with you 100% with what you said about his whiteness. I think authentically, and this, this has a lot to do with assimilation. It has to do with the dominant culture. It has to do with, you know, you, you're talking about uh, definitions, okay? Who created those definitions? The society, or you called it a fact. What makes it a fact? The word bad used to always mean bad until it didn't mean bad anymore. It meant good. I'm bad. Exactly. I'm bad. Exactly. You know so, so to me, and, and this is what I would say about you and about me, from a cultural standpoint, if people heard us talking, if they didn't know this was the brown and black show, they would not know you were black. I'm, I'm black. Oh, you're not black. They would not know you're Latin. They would not know I'm black. Why? Because part of our authentic self is that we articulate in a way that could be associated with white people. Now, for Obama to have succeeded in a hugely, largely white institution, which is our government, he had to, he couldn't be, he couldn't, uh, let's put it this way. He couldn't talk like Cori Bush uh, and become president. Okay. Now, Cori Bush is a fantastic orator. Okay. But you listen to Cori Bush talk, you have no doubt that she is a black woman. Okay. She speaks in, in a way, her, 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 her cadence, everything. Now, Obama, on the other hand, in my opinion, I've met guys 
like Obama. Uh, some people would consider me to be like Obama in the sense that I sound, quote unquote, more white, quote unquote, than I do black. But my answer to that was always, I don't think I sound white. I think I sound intelligent. So if you are interpreting intelligence as being white, then you are the one who's brainwashed. Yeah, they're infusing race into exactly. it. And, uh, and that's the problem. Right. You know, for me, being authentic has always been a problem because I don't know what the fuck that means. I'm being me every single day. Um, I code switch. There's people that now all of a sudden like, you shouldn't code switch. You should be authentically you at the workplace. Yes, yes, yes. I like the idea of that, but that's not exactly what happens when you go in and you act authentic, meaning you act your true ghetto self, your ghetto Latino, your ghetto black, your ghetto Indian, your ghetto Asian. Your proximity to whiteness is too obvious, Jack. You're not being authentically Latino. You got to be authentically Latino. That way we can all appreciate your Latinidad in its full glory. Let me tell you something. I don't know if I'm being authentic or not, but I don't give a shit. I'm going to wake up every single day and I'm going to talk the way I want. And if it's too bland and too boring for you and I don't have tattoos and I don't have all the wildness of me coming out at every single moment, at a party, at an event, at, at the workplace. If I come in and your authenticity doesn't like my authenticity, then are we really being authentic? Well, I would argue yes. Okay. Like whose authenticity is better? I don't think you can measure authenticity in terms of better. You can measure it in terms of purity. You can measure it in, in terms of, uh, see, it's like anything. Okay. Are you authentically beautiful if you have to put on makeup to really, really be beautiful? Or, or, or if you go out without makeup, are you quote unquote your authentic self? Or have you so identified, are you saying proximity to white culture, uh, proximity to, to makeup? And, you know, there are some women who can never go out quote unquote without putting in their face on. Okay. But then there are some women who almost never wear makeup. Like Alicia Keys. So is Alicia being authentically herself? And is the woman that's putting on the makeup to go out to, to work, to attract a maid, to attract a promotion, and she doesn't wear makeup, then she feels that she needs to, is she being authentically herself? That's like what happens question. to rules? Rules, rules don't make people be authentic. And there's another thing. What happens to the fucking pedophile that feels that he's authentically him when he's like being a fucking pedophile? I feel like authenticity is allowing defects and bad behavior to thrive because it's purely them deep down inside. The darkness that we all carry, Mike, is not fucking authentic for everybody else. That's the shit you should keep at home. Well, this comes back to what I, again, call, you know, you're calling it authentic. I, again, I come back to that toxic individualism. I mean, yes, it is makes sense to be an individual, but do you do it at the expense of others? Do you do it to the point where do I go take a crap, not tell you so? Yeah, you coming in the bathroom, you got to get hit with that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> is that me being authentic? Am I just authentically rude? Okay. Or do you now here's where it really comes in, because what's more important than authenticity is character. What is your character? Okay, that's you. You're being authentic. That's great. But what is the content of your character? If you're beautiful and you never work on yourself because you never had to, well, then the content of your character is flawed. You may be beautiful or as handsome as hell, but you being authentic, you're an asshole because you've not worked on the content of your character. So, Mike, I had a chance to finally give in and finally relent to the constant pressure to watch Squid Game. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen any episodes. I had a chance to see one episode and it was very disturbing. And I didn't even know what the hell this was. I feel like it was a program about a game, but that's scripted. And there's a lot of violence and... There's a lot of figuring out what's going on. And again, I just saw the first episode. Everybody tells me that you got to watch the first episode and the second episode together to really sort of understand where we're headed to. And then the end, there's like a plot twist and nobody knows if there's going to be a second season. 
I don't want to necessarily talk about and break down and review and critique the show. What I do want to talk about is diversity here. Mike, once again, what we're seeing is another Asian Korean show becoming a massive hit in America. Not only a massive hit in America, Mike, the biggest show in the history of Netflix. It's number one in 90 countries. That's almost the entire fucking world. And it's in Korean. It's not in English. It never had the marketing budget that other shows have had. It's in a different language, which Americans hate to listen to or to go watch. I had to put it on dub. I was watching it in subtitles, but I just got tired of reading. So I put it on dub and, I, you know, I, I'm, I don't like dubs, but it was the best way for me to try and enjoy this. And it's terrible. It's like the Kung Fu movies from Fox 5 back in the 80s, you know, just terrible American dub. You insult my teacher and you insult my school. Yeah, no, I've, I've seen <laughs> exactly. I've, it's like some white guy in yeah, the back exactly. you know, trying to do the, an Asian accent. Yeah, I, I'm trying to do an Asian I, accent. I remember, right. Yeah. And so that's what we get here. And I'm just saying to myself, Mike, where are we in America? I don't understand. Two things. One, there's no Latino shows like that. Why is America having a love affair with Asian content? Why is America having a love affair with Asian language? And why is America not having a love affair with the Latino citizens in its own country? All right. Well, I think there are three or four factors at work here. I think one part of the big topic here is the the idea of storytelling from other cultures and relatability. For a very long time, like you said, Americans don't like to read subtitles. You know, even today, there's a segregation. And they remake and they remake all the international shit, all of it. But at the same time, on, on a more uh, contained national level, for many, many years, you know, you, you have your target marketing. You know, if it's a Latino film, it's for the Latino audience. A black film, it's for the black audience, you know, that kind of thing. So that's always been baked in to, to those who are creating content and how they control the viewership and their perspective. It has nothing to do with what, it's sort of like if you get fed hamburgers every day and then somebody gives you sushi, you're like, oh, what the fuck is that? And then you fall in love with sushi. You're like, oh my God, I never knew because I've been eating hamburgers. So there there is that, you know, lack of inclusion that has created right. like it's the same reason I feel Afrofuturism is getting so big and will take off. And I think black and Latin horror is going to change things because we've been so used to this material and this type of storytelling and these type of characters that, oh, you know, there's a point where, especially in the last year and a half, where people just binge tons of stuff and then they're regurgitating and they're bringing back and they're rebooting and they're, you know, reunioning. So all of that content, all of this, let's say mostly white content has been out there for decades and decades and decades. I think what's happening, what Netflix has shown is that underserved market, that underserved audience, those underserved uh, cultures in terms of what people get a chance to view globally and especially nationally. I think Netflix has shown that there's a huge audience for that. Third thing that I think that's happening here is I do think as a science fiction person, uh, I think a dystopian scenario everybody can relate to because the world is freaking dying it's being destroyed we know it we watch it we we're sensitized to it but forget it i mean the planet is literally breaking down there's oil spills there's volcanoes there's floods there's plagues it's like we all know this it's part of the background of everyday life now so science fiction has always told us what's what's next what's ahead in this country we used to have debtor's prison now you only go to jail if you don't pay the state OK, so the idea of being in debt, everybody lives in debt. Everybody can relate to debt. Everybody can relate to doing whatever it takes to have money, to have this true freedom. So I think. Yes, Mike. But what we're talking about is this is Asian. This is a, a, a South Korean story, not an American one. So why is America uh, again, in love with it? I'm saying and I'm going to get to the fourth part in a minute. OK, so this this third part here is the relatability. Everybody can relate to the themes and it's something familiar about it. Like you said, it seemed like a game show. What is this? You know, it seems familiar, even though it's Asian, it still has all these trappings that are familiar to you in terms of how you receive information. So it's familiar. 
And the themes are everybody can relate to wanting to win millions of dollars because they're in debt. Now, the fourth thing I think that brings it in is what we talked about with Gina Torres, and that is the soap opera cliffhanger style of storytelling where you can't wait to get the next episode because it's left you hanging. You need to you need to know what's going to happen next. And that's that's those four factors combined are why I think this show is such a success. Yeah, but you still haven't told me why Asian culture and Asian programming in the United States of America is better than Latino content in America that is invisible. It's not better. But and again, this is part. How can it not be better? No one puts our shit on, but everyone everyone's putting out Asian stuff now, and it's all becoming it. Shang Chi, Parasite won an Oscar. This is going to be the biggest show on the planet in history. Mike, at what point will people start understanding that we here in the United States as Latinos are completely invisible? We spoke about this in the last episode. Asian culture is now more coveted than Latino culture in America. Am I wrong in saying that? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, but that's the irony of human beings. Do you remember there was a time, I mean, it's way before our time, but you see cartoons where the joke was if you if a character grabbed something and it said made in China, that meant it was going to break. Mm, you're right. Look at where we are today. The real question is now this comes to the fifth component. Why is Latino content? I mean, and what will it take to change it? You know, I think that invisibility factor, I think, I think what you're saying is huge. There are a lot more Latinos in America than there are um, Asian people. Not that mm -hmm. Asians are, there are a lot more. By a wide gap. By so a wide gap. This is why numbers don't matter. This is why people can't seem to ever understand fads and trends. Why did this pop off? Why is this more? By the way, here's what I think. I just think that white people are the ones who get to dictate who's hot and who's not. You know, Blacks weren't invited to the club. Asians were invited to the club. Latinos were invited to the club. Gays weren't invited to the club. And now everyone seems to be getting their due except Latinos. Wow. Yeah, I, 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 I can't argue that. I mean, I'm just reading an article. I don't know what I did, at, you know, what my community did to piss off people, but we pissed them off hard, man. That's because you were being authentic. <laughs> Mike, speaking about being authentic and being who you are, no one represents their both of their cultures, Black and Latino, like Gina Torres. She's a seasoned veteran actor, producer, uplifting voices of color all her career. Uh, she's one of the most respected, beloved actors that we have, and she's now a part of a brand new podcast that's reimagining the telenovela, but instead on screen, they're doing it now in audio. Let's listen to a little bit of this podcast called Princess of South Beach. What are the ingredients for a perfect telenovela? Obviously, you need twins. A rich one. Ugh. Oh my God, is that a Birkin? And a not so rich one. I'm an orphan raised in a poor convent. When would I have gone out to eat, Estrella? You need a terrible accident and mistaken identities. I should just tell the truth about who I really am. Throw in a charming prince. Mi amor, the kid to my cat, the hakuna to my matata. The a nosy maid. Giving out advice nobody asked for and vacuuming once in a while. A cruel stepmother. You're useless. And a father with dark secrets. This will ruin us both. Now get out! Oh, and don't forget the nun. Wait, there's a nun? And promise that you won't listen to reggaeton. De todas maneras, the devil is what makes it so catchy. This show has all that and much, much more. Princess of South Beach, a telenovela like you've never heard it before. Because telenovelas are hell. And so is this family. Princess of South Beach. Starring Rachel Zegler, Gina Torres, Raul Esparza, Danny Pino, X Mayo, and Yvonne Cole. 
What's interesting about Princess of South Beach for me, because you know I started in radio doing radio drama, then it became audio drama, now it's fiction podcasts, whatever. But what's interesting about it and what I think is great about it, and we talk about it in the interview, is the idea of what you talked about earlier. Like this type of storytelling is deeply entrenched in Latinidad. You know, everybody knows, even if you've never seen a telenovela, you know what a telenovela is, whether you have respect for it or you don't have respect for it, you know what it is, but you probably haven't experienced it. People who experience it, it's easy to get hooked. It's easy to get hooked, just like Squid Game, just like many, many other things that we can get hooked into, just like we have, you know, because in my opinion, telenovelas are one of the most longstanding, addictive forms of storytelling Ever. Yes, and it's also very frowned upon by its own Hispanic community as something that they don't want to be associated with. So we asked her about something that. you leave behind. Right. Yeah. And so we asked her about the complicated relationship that Hispanics have with telenovela. A lot of them love them. We want to preserve them, but we don't support them. And it's reflective in the ratings at Univision and Telemundo. So we talked to her about that. We talked about what producing and what negotiating at the table in Hollywood with white studio executives and agents. What are they asking for? And she gave us two stories, Mike, that were really interesting when I asked her about, have you ever been pressured to change one of your characters from black, Latino, or Afro-Latino to white in order to sell it? When you hear these two stories, it's only going to reinforce what you already know about Hollywood. The name of this podcast show is called Brown and Black. That's all of me. Exactly. <laughs> so you got one brown guy here, you got a black guy here, and you are the magic union of those two. I like to think so. And we're like, she's like a living representation of the identity <laughs> of this podcast. The first thing I wanted to ask you was about this new podcast. It's called yes. Princess of South Beach. And it's an innovative new take on the novella. It's 36 episodes of what it, what is an audio reimagination of telenovelas that we've seen on Telemundo and Univision. Yep. Um, but they flipped it. They've recorded it with a cast in English where you are included. There are one in Spanish. And what was the pitch that sold you on wanting to do this? Oh my God, this is so easy. This is so easy for me on so many different levels. First of all, I started doing voice work probably about 10 years ago and I loved using my voice. I love sort of having that be the vessel of creativity where, you know, it's, it's brain, mouth, done. It's kind of how I talk to people anyway. So it was, there was no, um, you, you know, you're, you're sort of absent from your body and really able to imbue and create this world with your voice. Um, and so you talk about new technology and for me, it's really hearkening back to radio and right. radio plays. One of my dearest girlfriends, her mom had like the old LPs of like only the shadow knows. And, you know, we, <laughs> she'd play them for us, like, like during a sleepover. And that began my, uh, my love and really my understanding of what the theater of the mind is capable of. Mm. So now that's already happening in my brain. That's already a part of me. And then you marry that with my deep love for drama and camp and all the telenovelas that I watched with my mom growing up and watching her cry <laughs> and gasp and watching, you know, these ridiculously good looking people on screen, like go through every possible trial imaginable and come out on the other side, still looking impossibly beautiful and have a wedding. And so it just, and, and because of, you know, what we're talking about and, and thematically what is uh, important to us here in this podcast, never having seen myself represented. Yeah. 
in those telenovelas and always wanting to be a part of, you know, that nighttime soap opera, which I didn't see myself on until Diane Carroll showed up on Dynasty. That was the only one there. There was we weren't represented on Dallas, which I watched faithfully or or not or any of those shows, really. So here comes Sonoro. And they pitch me this idea, which has melded every possible like landscape, <laughs> dream <laughs> landscape for me. Right. And I'm right? like, where do I sign? Like, you know, like, como que es posible? It's me. <laughs> La Matrioca? Yes. <laughs> Hell yes. yes. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> so this was a bit of like a dream come true for you, like in terms of creative, you know, projects. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Well, awesome. I have to ask you now, uh, as you're speaking, I'm I'm holding myself back from start. I started out in radio doing radio drama. So. There you go. <laughs> and and I did audio books. I even directed Alfred Woodard in a piece. And oh. There's so many things I love about what you're saying. And you mentioned something else I have to touch upon, which is nighttime soaps. In my opinion, nighttime soaps changed television forever. Because, 100%. Because we are all watching nighttime soaps now. You know, binge watching, it's all the template from that. You know what I mean? Yes. So, uh, so I love that. And telenovelas, again, I kind of see that almost like horror movies. People who are into it, it's like, why? And then you watch it and you go, okay, now I see. So, <laughs> What, what do you think of the power of representation in audio, what you can do? To me, this just is opening the door to all these possibilities. It's an exciting time as someone who's done audio drama. What's your take on that? The barriers that have been created in terms of letting talent in and through, right? When you're talking about programming, when you're talking about visual programming, traditionally those worlds have been constructed um, historically how those worlds have, have been constructed and for the consumer they've been constructed for it's it's left us out of the game the beautiful thing about podcasts and and you a radio play as it were is that you get to showcase this talent mm -hmm. without asking a whole new audience to accept somebody that doesn't look like them into their world, right? If, if, that, if that is your first point of entry, right? Where you're sort of afraid, oh, they won't accept this because A, we look different. And therefore you have this preconceived idea of who they should be and what they should be and what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. right? When you enter into their consciousness with your voice, and your talent and the story, and you're leading with the story, then none of that shit matters. <laughs> it's true. It's, yeah. This is what happens with the voice. That's the reason the <laughs> yes. voice was such a big hit yes. because it wasn't that overweight person who right. looks a little gothic that lived in the basement and has a great voice. It was more yeah. just judging the voice. Yes, yeah. And and that's what, you know, God, no, yeah, I mean, that, that famous, that song video killed the radio star uh well video has killed a lot of us <laughs> has tried to has tried to kill a lot of us um or keep us down for so many times but again i i can be so very many things <laughs> with just my voice and to have that opportunity to infiltrate your consciousness <laughs> <laughs> with all of these talented, these diversely talented people, um, I think is groundbreaking. The other side of that or the other piece of that is it is so accessible. I cannot tell you how many times I have, and, and you know, my Suits cast members will tell you this, being in Toronto, because <laughs> that's where we shot, um, and I'll make this short, but we shot in Toronto. I had a sling box. I was addicted to a particular, you know, novella that was going on in the States. I bought the sling box just so that I can record it. Wow. And I would watch it in the hair and makeup trailer while I was getting my hair and makeup done, which is like, you know, a good hour and a half. So I could mm. like get like two episodes in, right? Like I'd stock them up. So my English speaking castmates would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and I would find myself in the position of simultaneously translating 
<laughs> oh no oh my goodness what was going on and like 15 minutes into anything they're like wait what 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 <laughs> the addiction to the novella <laughs> what's happening okay but what's happening with juan carlos because last i heard and i come in and they'd wait and so there was never you know even now there are certain streaming um platforms where you could stream them but there's there's no closed captioning there's no trans there's no translating my current partner has sat in this very room and i'm like listen i gotta go <laughs> and, and i start simultaneously translating and he's in He's in, wow, he's interested. Wow. And so my point being, what's so glorious about these Sonoto podcasts is that they are bilingual and there is a Spanish speaking version and an English speech so that we can all listen. It's not just something that's happening. And I can relax, by the way. Can I, did I mention, I can just relax. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you and enjoy it <laughs> and enjoy it. Without having to simultaneously translate. <laughs> Gina, so let me talk to you a little bit about telenovelas because we all grew up with telenovelas. Mike, I'm not sure in your household today, your parents didn't watch telenovelas, right? No, my 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 parents were watching other things that were equally melodramatic. So. <laughs> yes. So, you know, for us, and this is a great question to ask you because I don't believe you've ever been a part of a telenovela on Telemundo, Univision, Televisa. As the years have passed by, we grew up watching our mothers and our abuelas watch novelas, but then there was, a, there was a point that we no longer continued that tradition. Correct. And we started noticing there was a separation from the style of telenovela acting that was becoming to be frowned upon by thespians, by theater actors. And, and as an actress, now that you're part of this audio telenovela, why do you think that English language telenovelas haven't been a hit? Why is it frowned upon now? Is it an acting style that just rubs people the wrong way? What exactly is it from an acting perspective? It's hard to find actors of my generation who will sit and watch a Hitchcock movie from beginning to end, who will, who will sit and watch something that's in black and white. Um, be, and, and some of that is, is an acting style. Some of that is, uh, you know, a, shall we say, a less than subtle approach to the mm -hmm. word. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love storytelling. And, and I did. I, I went away from uh, watching telenovelas for years. I, you know, I left my parents' house and, and you know, I was on to the and next that was thing. That. And, yeah. and that was that. And I... And I um, was learning how to do what I do in, 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 in the way that I do it. And oddly enough, what brought me back was the understanding that when I left my parents' house, I wasn't speaking as much Spanish as I needed yeah. to, wanted to, and wanting, needing to keep the language alive in my, in my life. Wow. So it was, yeah. So it was really my need to be around conversational Spanish, to be around my culture and how I sort of grew up seeing how the world worked was what brought me back. We have spoken of, uh, you, the two of you have spoken of the absence of ourselves, not being able to create and learn among other Latinos because I was pegged black and only black hmm. created a need created you know a, a hole that had to be filled and i and i found it watching telenovelas that is such a great story how novellas <laughs> serve as a nostalgic tool to rediscover your roots as 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 us latinos that we are we feel guilty it's interesting because this has happened to me too gina where I thought I was black for a long time. I was just looking at my features and I thought I was black. Then I did my DNA, I found out I'm indigenous. I'm Inca from Colombia with Spaniards, so I'm a mestizo. Right. But for a long time, Univision was like, you don't look Mexican enough, man. So you can't go to network and you can't work at Despierta America. You can't do that. Right. And it made me feel ashamed of being me. If like something, like I was defective or something as a Latino. So I never fully embraced the Latin American heritage because I didn't feel owned by them. And what I right. found out is that it Mexican is in Latinidad. It's just mm -hmm. Mexican. 
Right. And so being a part of the American network, you know, when I was at VH1 and the Today Show and recently did a show on NBC, I wasn't white enough for them to. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting. I've heard of this concept with Afro-Latinos called triple consciousness, mm. where they're never allowed to feel their full Latinidad, full Blackness and full Americanness. Right. As an actor for you, when you're trying to create content, how much are you leaned in to just be Black, to just be Latina, or just to be neutral? I think neutrality was a, was a big thing for me because it was the only thing that allowed me not to sacrifice one or the other. Hmm. Now, some may look at the neutrality and think, well, she's absolutely sacrificing one for the other. She's whitewashing. Look <laughs> at that. You see, neutrality means whitewashing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and for me, it was really quite the opposite. It was yeah. holding on to both, owning both, knowing that I am both parts. And whatever you saw was your business. <laughs> because that is part of what I do for a living. Part of my artistry is to allow you to see yourself in me. And because what I'm doing is I'm mirroring your humanity mm -hmm. as an actor. And, you know, it, 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 it goes sort of part and parcel with, with my disdain for social media. You want to know more and more and more and more about this person. And for me, it's like part of you knowing not that much helps you. The mystery, right. <laughs> part of the mystery of who I am gives you more entree, gives you more entry into me and therefore yourself. I mean, I've, I've been to all of those places, not certainly not being white enough for white consumers or what, but that was, not, was, that was never my issue. I never thought my, I never thought of myself as white. I never thought anybody thought I was white. I never, you know, mm -hmm. that wasn't a thing. <laughs> and I think the most hurtful part of it was not being fully accepted. By your own community, right? But by my own community or, or the black community. And, and not, not for lack of, not for not lack of wanting to, because I mean, the colorism involved on both sides. Oh, is, it's unbelievable. It's is obscene. Yes. It's, it's just obscene. Absolutely. So, you know, as a light-skinned black woman, all the tropes and all the pain and the trauma that's associated with that, like I became a lightning rod for that. But then for, you know, white Latinos, I was too dark. <laughs> and then being in a business that you know tells you we're choosing for you you don't get to choose we're choosing for you and this is what it is and this and then coming up as an actress during the height of the urban independent when you're talking about Spike Lee and John Singleton and and these are these are worlds culturally that I didn't connect with Culturally, right. you're right <laughs> because your your parents are from Cuba, which is a very different. Even if they're black, the African American black experience Correct. is different than the yes. Caribbean one. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and so to try to explain that, yeah, because what I would always will always love my parents for is is giving me such a strong sense of self and strong sense of identity. I knew it was their problem. <laughs> it wasn't right. my problem. It was their problem. Yeah. And so the responsibility of it, the weight of the responsibility of having to explain myself, to explain my very existence was the hardest part. But, you know, again, we go back to, you know, this medium of television and film is so powerful that if those yeah. are the only images that you see and that they are defined in a certain way for millennia, <laughs> <laughs> for decades and generations, then, you know, who do we blame, really? You touch upon a bunch of things I can relate to, you know, uh, my, my daughter 
is Afro-Latina. So I've had these conversations with her. And you, you, you know, you mentioned storytelling and you talk about cultural pride. And uh, what I love about the reframing of telenovelas, and to answer your question, Jack, no, I didn't grow up in the house, but I had a lot of friends where I'd go over and like, what are they watching? You know, <laughs> quiet, you know, <laughs> talking to the set, oh, you know, you know, Adios mio. you know, I, I, vividly remember yes. that it's like a relationship you have absolutely yes okay but <laughs> but what i i know about them and like i said with soap opera is just that it, it is storytelling i i can liken it almost to anime with japanese where yes they're adult stories they're a little heightened you know mm -hmm. but they teach you more about life than looking at instagram or playing a video game or you, you know what i mean yes storytelling. so i just want to know your thoughts on where we are today because, you know, my daughter is just starting out living in L.A., just graduated college, just got her first job at DreamWorks, all of that. She's like an Afro-Latina. You know what it's like. So yes. This is a great time. There's never been a time like this that no. a project like this could happen. Uh, but tell me your thoughts about being able to reframe something that Jack mentioned is something you might be embarrassed about you know, as opposed to having cultural pride about and, and what you think about where we are now, especially for and this is for my daughter to hear, about <laughs> being an Afro-Latina. Right. Um, yes, I realize I never really fully answered um, that question. <laughs> no, it's okay. I think the anime comparison is brilliant, actually. And it, and it's very, and my daughter's deep into anime right now. Oh, so wow. I've, I've okay. seen it big, I've big, big, <laughs> It's huge big. right now. Yes, it is. It's huge. Um, so I've, I've, um, watched a few things with her as well. So I completely, completely get it. You are a hundred percent right in what is, what was true then, what is true now is that these tend to be sort of like extended morality plays, mm -hmm. right? When you consider that good is good and is always good, Black is black <laughs> in, in terms of it's bad and the bad guy gets it in the end. He does not get the girl. He's probably under the jail or dead. The good guy and the good girl get together. There is, um, there's, a there's a comeuppance, there's a come to Jesus moment, there's retribution, there's justice uh, on some level and, and a greater understanding of what the hell this is all about. Mm -hmm. And so that was true then. It is true now. The faces are changing, which I'm very, very excited about. And it gives us all a chance to play in, um, in the sandbox in, in different ways. So we're telling these stories, but now we're telling them in a way that is inclusive, that we can see ourselves in, that Someone that looks like me doesn't just get to play the know-it-all maid. She gets to be the head of the family. That we have a, a gay relationship as well in this storyline, which historically speaking in, in, in the Latin uh, oh, Hispanic no -no. telenovelas was, uh -huh, no, I mean, it's because they're so, they're so deeply Catholic and Christian um, and that's, I'm happy to say that's changing as well. And Sonoro is bringing it, you know, as part of that movement of redefining what family looks like, of redefining what love looks like <clears throat> and, and where it goes and, and how it lives in, in different people. And so I'm excited for your daughter. I mean, she's, her world and her sandbox is so much broader than, than ours was when we were coming up. Absolutely. Yeah. Gina, in 2019, you became the first Afro-Latina to create, star in, and produce a TV series called Pearson, which is the spinoff off of Suits. <laughs> And this was a very monumental moment, not only for you, but for the community as well. And I wanted to ask you, when did you start, when did you decide to add producer to your resume and why? Uh, producing was something I always wanted to do. Producing was the invisible hyphenate <laughs> to my actress um, because I love storytelling. I wanted and have always desired to have the kind of platform that would allow me to bring stories that weren't 
necessarily being told hmm. in a way that could be accessible to everyone. My story, my parents' story, um, my next door neighbor's story that are all relevant. And I think really have become essential uh, as I've gotten older, as we've evolved as, as a country, as a world, because it is, it's a global economy. We, because of this computer that we're in, we have access to so much more and so many more people that you learn and really realize and understand that our stories are universal. And if I am expected, as all of us here have been expected to pay our $10, $15, $20 to accept and find ourselves in characters in a world that is not familiar to us, that don't look like us, people, characters that don't look like us, whether it be sci-fi, or whether it be a Woody Allen movie or, or a John Hughes movie that we grew up with, or, you know, if, if we are expected to take that leap, then why shouldn't our Caucasian counterparts take the same leap and find themselves in a story that is generated, produced by, and acted by your black, your, your black and your brown of people. <laughs> it, Why can't we do that? If I may, uh, Mike, just to follow up with Gina, was there ever any moment that you pitched something in an agent or a studio executive when you brought in an, uh, a, a Latino or, or a black or an Afro-Latino character within that story, were you ever asked to change it so they can sell it better? <laughs> yeah, there are several examples of... <laughs> Of my going in for uh, my going in for parts where I didn't line up with their vision of what that person should look like. You know, I can I can give two in particular and sort of very different for very different reasons. One is pure ignorance. And then the other is was, you know, the economic uh, an economic reason that they used a lot. So. In casting Cleopatra 2525. I remember. That instant classic um, <laughs> that I was in. I was the first one in the door. That show was pitched to me by Rob Tappert, who I had already been, I had already, you know, had a recurring role on Hercules Legendary Journeys. So he very much said, I have this show. I want you to be the star. I know I, you know, I, it, it'll be a hit. And, and I was like, oh, okay, well, cool. And then they auditioned the other two ladies who got the part and Jennifer Skye and Victoria Pratt. And we start shooting it and it didn't have a title at the time. And, but we all had names, you know, so, and, 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 and putting a title on a show is a big deal. Right because they have to make sure that it sells and that it's this and that's that. So we finally hear what the title is. <laughs> and it's not hell 2525. <laughs> and Meanwhile, I've been, and you know, in the industry, there's a thing, number one on the call sheet, you know, all the characters are numbered and usually the star is number one. And, and it's then like a it's hierarchy, sort of, it's right? A, yeah, List. it's a hierarchy. Yeah. So I'm number one on the call sheet. Um, and I asked him about it. And I was like, so Cleopatra 2525? Like, <laughs> what's that about? And he said, well, I can't sell a show. <laughs> with a female wow. black lead. I, I'm going to have a hard time selling a show with a black lead in major markets because it was syndicated and also, you know, in the European market. And I was in my early twenties and I, and I had been to mm -hmm. Europe a couple of times and I was like, you mean Europe where people follow me down the street? <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> As a black woman, 
a black woman in Italy is like. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's ridiculous. I mean, so I, my mind was like blown that that that's that was the excuse. That's what happened. And so I was the lead of this show, but nobody knew it because all of the advertising and all of the PR and all like uh, everything went to the ladies on either side of me. <laughs> wow. So that was my first experience with, with the business. And then there was uh, this movie that I tried out for. It was the movie Blood and Wine and it was Jack Nicholson. Oh, wow. And this is the part that Jennifer Lopez ended up getting. So I go in for this Latina part and I think she was specifically supposed to be Cuban. This is what mm. makes that, that's what makes okay. this fun. So she <laughs> she's she specifically supposed to be Cuban and kind of like this, this hustler and, and, you know, just trying to like, you know, play two ends against the middle. And so I go in and this casting director starts giving me notes on how I should behave as no. a human woman. Now she doesn't know my background because I think she assumes <laughs> that I'm not Latina, but maybe someone somewhere was because, you know, because of my last name. And I just kind of take a moment because she starts telling me that people that grow up in a communist country are cold and wow. um and calculating and da 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 and i just kind of went well i just screwed up this part for myself so because <laughs> i couldn't just sit there i couldn't just sit there and like listen right. to this woman who had no idea of what was going on and i said and i and i said um how many cubans do you know she said well um my next door neighbor is um is russian and, you know, he grew Russian. up, you know, behind Holy the Iron Curtain and, and grew up, you know, in a communist country. And so when you grow up and I said, I'm sorry, you're wrong. And she looked at me and she said, what would you? Well, how many Cubans do you know? <laughs> oh, it was it was everything that I had waited for. <laughs> yes, just, just yes. This, this moment in time, it's like, lady, the culmination, I, the gift right, right, that right. you have just given me. Oh, a fastball like you, right up the middle. Wall, you break the fourth wall and look at the camera and go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, oh my god! And I proceeded to tell her that not only was I Cuban. Oh, both. Parents, yes, both parents, 100%. But I had also visited the country quite a few times as, as a teenager and as a young woman and just read it just all the way down the line. I said, Russian and Cuban have nothing to do with each other nothing. other than some political policy. <laughs> this yeah, is the Cuban not... missile crisis. <laughs> and yeah, that the Cold War, that, that's it. That's it. If in that moment I kept her from ever again saying some stupid shit like that, mm -hmm. <laughs> then it was worth it. It was worth the price of admission because, oh, it, and, and it's, it's just, it's shocking to me how, and again, it's ignorance. It's just, it's just ignorance. Some of it is willful. Some of it, it just is because the information has not been so readily available. I mean, this is all stuff that you have, if, if you care or if you're interested in, you got to go find. It's not, especially back then. I mean, we're talking over 15 years ago. It's where the world was such as it was. And you had to really have a personal interest in that part of the world to care. Right. So well, hopefully I helped her care. <laughs> just a little I bit. I think you did. I, just a little bit. <laughs> you have to go back to get a tan that night. Well, uh, a couple things you said that I, I want to touch upon because I very much relate to, um, but I started out doing science fiction radio drama. That's how I started. And, and the main character, I kept his face blank. 
Mm. Uh, so the idea was you could imagine whoever you want to be. And this was this was like in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s. And then I released it on CD and whatnot. And again, uh, at the time, the idea of a black hero science fiction was, you know, you know, I had lots of meetings. They never went anywhere. But right. I feel that science fiction is probably one of the most powerful forms of storytelling there is it's clearly the most popular science fiction and yeah. fantasy. they're all in the top 20 uh so i just want to know your thoughts on that and i i also feel like everything you described for a telenovela in terms of the beats mm-hmm. that's that's star wars star wars is the telenovela mm-hmm. yes yeah I've, I've heard the comparisons to soap operas yes it, yes it, it is i mean it, they call it a space opera but that, that's what it is so uh, i'm just curious uh what your thoughts are on on the power of science fiction and maybe how important, like you said, it is to have Cleopatra 2020. I do have the DVD set, just so you know, I do have the <laughs> okay. uh, I, um, I do too. But okay, I have Firefly, I have Firefly too, I have Firefly. So, yes. uh, so for me, like, you know, I, I've been following your career for a long time. So this is, this is but I, I'm curious to what your thoughts are because I, I think we're doing, telenovelas with gay characters we could have science fiction telenovelas we could have uh horror telenovelas. why couldn't we yeah. have why couldn't and we it, make yeah. all those elements into telenovela yeah is that in the production <laughs> slate is. you know yeah. in the, is that in the gina torres production slate <laughs> absolutely oh. 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 absolutely all right so <laughs> yes on the power of science fiction and how pervasive it is and how important it is for us to now finally you know, Octavia Butler is finally going to be made, things like that. What are your thoughts on all of that? I, I honestly don't know what kind of career I would have if not for science fiction wow. and fantasy. It is, you know, again, I got to go back to, I mean, you know, I was doing a lot of theater in New York City. I was, uh, I did a couple of soap operas <laughs> and, and sort of popping into shows here and there. But Rob Tappert putting me into Hercules, Legendary Journeys, gave me a career, gave me a place to stand. Because up until then, I I was limited by the world that we saw. And he said, I see you. You're almost six feet tall. You're ethnically ambiguous. You clearly don't take shit from anybody. (laughs) I'm going to give you a sword and I'm going to give you a brass bra and some suede pants and go. (laughs) And I said, (laughs) yes, please. (laughs) And, And then, you know, and then that morphed into... Cleopatra 25, which then begat, you know, Firefly to some degree, which then begat or, you know, prior to that begat Alias. And and so it it opened the door to playing these these women that were that just dared you to to really expand your vision of of where women should be, where women of color should be, how they fit into the world, and the kind of damage that they can do, <laughs> as well as the kind of good that that they can, you know, create and instill in other people. And so that was incredibly exciting. And I never looked back. I, I, you know, I, mm. I so very rarely thought of, oh, I wish I was playing that guy's girlfriend. <laughs> like yeah no i'm good right here because <laughs> i'm the chick on the rooftop who's got the boyfriend in her scope yes. <laughs> and, and <I'm> okay <laughs> and so that's that's empowering right that is that is so empowering and and not to be disparaging about all of us who have played girlfriends and wives <laughs> along the way but because of me, because of the body that I'm in, that was not going to be ever, ever an easy road for me unless I created it for myself. When I was starting out, it just wasn't happening. And so I was so grateful to the worlds of sci-fi and fantasy that let me be. Well, we're, we're grateful to you too. So. Gina Torres, the name of the podcast is called Princess of South Beach. It's out now on all podcast platforms. Gina. 
What an incredible conversation and what an honor to have you here. Thank you so much. We appreciate this and great good luck on all your endeavors uh, moving forward. Thank you. Thank you so much. I will happily come back anytime. You guys are amazing. Awesome. So much yes. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you for this. <laughs>